Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. This is the January 4th, Wednesday edition. Before we get into the headlines, let's take a check of the forecast here for Council Bluffs, Omaha, and the western Iowa and eastern Nebraska area. For today, you can expect a chance of flurries. High 30 degrees for tonight. Expect a chance of flurries before 5 a.m. or overnight, being tomorrow morning. Winds out of the northwest, gusting as high as 23 miles per hour. The low around 22 degrees for your overnight. For tomorrow, Thursday, expect uh, mostly cloudy conditions and gradually becoming sunny with a high near 30 degrees. Those winds gusty again, gusting as high as 23 miles per hour. For Thursday night, mostly clear conditions. Uh, the low around 18 degrees. And for your Friday, expect mostly sunny skies, a high near 38. Very nice for this time of the year. Possibly some snow on Saturday, though, so be careful if you are out and about. During this reading of the Council of Love's Daily Non-Perel, let's take a look at our first headline. Man killed in garage explosion Tuesday. One person confirmed dead at 35th Street and Avenue G. That happened on Tuesday. Council Bluffs police say the deceased is an adult male, but have not confirmed his identity. The area surrounding 35th Street and Avenue G remained closed throughout the afternoon due to the investigation, according to the Council Bluffs Police Department. An explosion and leaking gas was reported in the area just before noon Tuesday, according to a Facebook post from CP CBPD. Officers saw debris in the street when they arrived at the scene. It appears a small propane gas tank sitting near the home's detached garage exploded, causing damage and the fatality, police reported Tuesday afternoon. Don't know how that would have occurred, says Sergeant Ted Roberts. Black Hills Energy confirmed the area is safe and there are no gas leaks in the area. The neighborhood gas was shut off as a precaution. The Council Bluffs Fire Department took over the investigation, reporting that a proposed that a compressed natural gas cylinder exploded inside the garage at 709 North 35th Street. There are no indications that this explosion was the result of a gas leak from the utilities serving the property, the fire department said in a press release shared on Tuesday. The incident is still under investigation and the name of the deceased is not being released at this time. It just appears to be a horrible accident that occurred here at the house, Robert said. Other front page news includes, uh, includes Iowa educators seek a 5% raise. Funding increase, a matter of survival, educators say. Also, Byrd joins anti-Biden lawsuits. That's from the Capitol Notebook. And lawmakers to focus on workforce retaining grads. Republicans eye different take on Regent University funding. But we'll start off first here with Iowa educators seek 5% rise. Funding increase, a matter of survival, educators say. It's written by Grace King. Educators are asking for an increase of 5% in funding for Iowa public schools, saying it's crucial to retain and recruit staff, reduce class sizes, manage increased operating costs, and make up for decades of underfunding. A 5% increase is survival, Mount Vernon Superintendent Greg Battenhorst said. The cost of operating a school district increases by about 3% to 4% each year, according to school administrators of Iowa. However, over the last 10 years, state aid has increased at a rate of less than 2.1% on average. Iowa lawmakers must set the growth rate for the state supplemental aid in the first 30 days of each legislative session, 
which begins this year on Monday. Cedar Rapids Interim Superintendent Art Sathoff said the education budget should be a sacred cow. He believes increasing state supplemental aid by 5% is realistic given the economy. My fear would be that it comes at the expense of succeeding years, he said. Inflation, which has increased by about 8% in Iowa this year, is stretching school districts' dollars even further, educators say, and paying teachers a livable wage is challenging. Declining enrollment in many districts exasperate the problem with the state's per-pupil formula of about $7,400 a student. The Cedar Rapids Community School District, for example, has seen a decline of about 1,400 students in the last five years, Satoff said. The state provides reliable and sustainable funding increases to Iowa schools, said Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, Republican of Grimes. No aspect of the state budget has received more new funding since 2017 than K-12 education. Since 2017, K-12 funding has increased by over a half a billion dollars, he said. Whitfer said workforce shortages are not specific to education or to Iowa. It is an issue impacting every sector of the economy, he said. Over the last couple of years, the legislature has passed several different loan repayment incentives, eased unnecessary licensing requirements for educators, and reduced taxes for all working families so they keep more of what they earn. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, agrees. We're spending more money today on K-12 state supplemental aid than we ever have in the state, he said. Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Converse, Democrat of Windsor Heights, said Democrats will continue to fight to increase funding for education, which is desperately needed, she said. Republicans are defunding Iowa's public schools, said Iowa Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat of Coralville, the impact of which is bigger class sizes and making it harder for Iowa to attract and retain workers. We obviously need to be investing more in that next generation of teachers and having a stronger pipeline, raising teacher pay, and shrinking class sizes, he said. Those are good for teachers, and they're good for students. Funding full-day preschool. Another priority for Iowa school districts is the state fully funding four-year-old preschool. Children who participate in early childhood programming like preschool have better health and better social, emotional, and cognitive outcomes, according to the Iowa City Community School District's legislative priorities. Research shows that students with access to four-year-old preschool are less likely to repeat a grade, less likely to be identified as having special needs, more prepared academically for later grades, and more likely to graduate from high school. Those not in quality preschool opportunities are going to start their K-12 school experience behind their peers, Mount Vernon's Batten Horst said. The key of preschool is learning how to work and play with others. It's not even about academic skills. Preschools help develop that foundation for learning. Currently, Iowa's statewide voluntary preschool program provides funding for for free half-day preschool to four-year-olds. Half-day programs can be a barrier for working families who are unable to find child care before or afterward or transportation for their child. Converse said Democrats will be pushing hard this year to fully fund four-year-old preschool, which is a great equalizer and could have a positive impact on the future of the state. Republican leaders Whitfer and Grassley said fully funding four-year-old preschool will be up to the Education Committee. Alarming need for mental health services is our next uh, subheadline and our final subheadline of this article. State educators are also asking 
for an increase in funding for mental health services to address the alarming need, quote-unquote, across the state, according to the Iowa City Community School District's legislative priorities. One in five children in the United States has a mental, emotional, or behavioral disorder, according to the American Psychological Association. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for middle and high school students. Our teachers didn't need didn't go into education to be therapists, but that's become one of their de facto roles because of the greater social emotional needs in the classroom, Battenhorst said. Many school districts have agreements with mental health providers to provide counseling services to students, but the demand is great. We need to make sure we're incentivizing providers to come to Iowa and educating more providers to provide services for kids, Confers said. The problem with children's mental health in this state is far from solved, and it's going to take some investment. It's going to take some resources, and frankly, it's going to take some attention to get this done because kids need more than they're getting. Grassley agrees there's a need for more providers. We can put all the money in the world toward this, but there just aren't the people to fill the jobs, he said. Incentives need to be created to attract workers to the profession and to to rural Iowa, he said. It's equally important for school districts to be able to provide mental health services to their teachers and staff, Cedar Rapids Sadoff said. There is no job in education that has gotten less complicated or less stressful, he said. All right, another front page news. Bird joins anti-Biden lawsuits. Iowa AG takes action on first day in office. This is written from the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd signed on to lawsuits challenging Joe Biden's administration and Democratic-backed laws during her first day in office on Tuesday. Byrd, a Republican who took over the office after defeating Democrat Tom Miller in the November election, made challenging the Biden administration in court a central plank of her campaign, along with her assertion that she would back the blue and support law enforcement. Byrd signed on to a challenge led by Nebraska to Biden's student debt forgiveness program, as well as lawsuits challenging vaccine mandates and challenging a provision of the American Rescue Plan Act that prevented states from using federal funds to cut state taxes. The state of Iowa had already been a party to the lawsuits Byrd signed on to, her office said in a press release, but Miller had not attached his name to them. Byrd also appeared to represent Republican Governor Kim Reynolds in her appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court seeking to reinstate Iowa's so-called fetal heartbeat law, which would make abortion illegal except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy. Byrd's office said she would begin 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 a top-down and bottom-up audit of the office's Victim Services Division. The effort will be led by her new Assistant Attorney General for Victim Services, John Gish. The office will be hiring more prosecutors to serve in the statewide prosecution section. Before entering the office, Byrd requested the resignation of 19 staffers, according to the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Susan Christensen reselected as Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice. The Iowa Supreme Court reselected Chief Justice Susan Christensen to continue her role as Chief Justice for the next two years. Christensen of Harlan was first selected as Chief Justice in 2020, succeeding Mark Cady, who died in 2019. She was appointed to the state's highest court by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds in 2018. She spent the previous 11 years as a judge and practiced law for 16 years in Harlan. Christensen is the second woman to serve as the court's chief justice. 
I am honored to be selected by my colleagues to continue to serve as Chief Justice of Iowa's court system, Christensen said in a press release. In the beginning of my first term, the governor's office and the Iowa Department of Public Health urged Iowans to prepare for COVID-19. Since then, I have seen the resilience and dedication of our judges and court staff. My pride in the judicial branch grows every day, and I am grateful for the confidence my colleagues have placed in me and for the devoted work of all judicial branch employees across the state. Well, the Chief Justice sets the court's oral argument schedule, delivers the State of the Judiciary Address, which will be not long from now, and the to the Iowa Legislature each year, and provides over oral arguments and court conferences. Republican leaners decline press group reform. The Iowa Capital Press Association's annual legislative preview forum was canceled this week after Governor Kim Reynolds... Republican Senate Majority Jack Whitfer and Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley declined to attend the forum. The forum previously held by the Associated Press has been held for more than 20 years, giving Iowa reporters an opportunity to ask legislative leaders for both parties about their plans for the upcoming session. The Iowa Capital Press Association is very disappointed with this decision by Republican State House leaders a decision that continues an unsettling trend of reduced availability to Iowa journalists, the association wrote in a news release. The ICPA continues to believe elected officials who craft state laws and operate state government should be accessible to the journalists who monitor that work on behalf of all Iowans. The Iowa Capital Press Association said in the release it hopes to resume the forum next year or at another time this year. Grassley becomes longest-serving Republican senator. Iowa United States Senator Chuck Grassley became the longest-serving Senate Republican in U.S. history after being sworn into his eighth Senate term on Tuesday. He surpassed Orrin Hatch of Utah, who served from 1977 to 2019. Grassley was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 1980 and has held the seat for 42 years, making him the sixth-longest-serving senator of either party. Grassley, age 89, is now also the longest-serving sitting U.S. Senator, replacing Democrat Patrick Leahy, who did not seek re-election and finished his 48-year tenure on Tuesday. The feat grants Grassley the informal title of Dean of the Senate, which is given to the chamber's longest-serving member. Serving my fellow Iowans in the Senate continues to be an honor of a lifetime, Grassley said in a statement provided by his office. I love Iowa and I love my work for the people of Iowa. Today, Iowa holds the number one spot in the Senate with my leadership. I look forward to continuing to to deliver for Iowa. I'm humbled and grateful to be entrusted with the honor to continue working for our great state. Reynolds to deliver condition of the state address. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, will deliver her annual condition of the state address on January the 10th, on the second day of the upcoming legislative session. The address will take place at 6 p.m. on January 10th in the House Chambers at the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines. It will be live-streamed on Iowa PBS, YouTube, and the Governor's Facebook page. During the address, Reynolds will report on various aspects of state government and lay out her priorities for the legislative session, which begins January the 9th. On Iowa Politics Podcast, the RIP Democratic Caucuses Edition is what they <laughs> the I, that's a way of putting it. RIP Dem, Iowa Democratic Caucuses Edition. If you want to listen to that, uh, it's noted here in this story. 
All right, moving on to what would be our last front page headline and story. Lawmakers to focus on workforce and retaining grads. Republicans eye different take on Regent University funding. This story by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette. Although a Republican-led effort last year to change the way Iowa funds its public universities didn't materialize, the concept isn't dead, as lawmakers are airing plans to revisit the idea in the upcoming session in their debate over how much to give the state institutions. When it comes to education funding, quite frankly, I think it's time for us to take a look at how we fund the Regent institutions, said House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford. We're not opposed to providing more funding into that area of the budget, but we feel we have to get a return from the standpoint of helping fill these high-demand fields in which there's needs all across the state. Included in last year's Republican-backed higher education funding proposal, which Grassley said is similar to what we will look at this year, was a mechanism to provide scholarships and incentives for students to stay and work in high-demand fields in Iowa after graduation. I think that's a perfect example of something that we can do that will do two things. Number one, drive more people into these degrees, but also keep them here to help fill these high-demand jobs, Grassley said. We want to try some new things, and this would be a new idea that we really haven't done a lot of investment in in the past. Something that we could try to make sure that we're not just doing things the way they've all, we, or we've always done, he said. How it's usually done. Well, the Iowa Board of Regents every fall sends appropriation requests to the legislature, broken down by general higher education funds to be distributed among the three public universities at the Regents' discretion and by special schools and special purpose units like the University of Iowa-based State Hygienic Lab and Iowa State University-based Agriculture Experiment Station. Lawmakers in the House and Senate then propose funding amounts and come together for a compromised appropriations package they send to the governor for approval. Lately, the legislature has denied the region's full appropriations ask, even cutting support for amounts it had already approved on occasion, like in the summer of 2020, when lawmakers took back $8 million and brought the total higher education appropriation to $63 million less than it was two uh, decades earlier in fiscal 20 or fiscal 2001. I hope I'm reading that right. When Regents last year asked for $22.1 million of an increase, including $15 million in general higher education funding, the three universities vowed to spend on things like mental health resources, graduation and retention rates, and filling high-demand jobs in Iowa, lawmakers instead okayed a $5.5 million general education funding bump amounting to a 1.1% increase for each campus. Republican lawmakers had proposed a bigger bump of $12 million but wanted to tie it to a new Iowa Workforce Grant and Incentive Program administered by the state's College Student Aid Commission. The program would have supported students directly through grants and scholarships and compelled universities to compete among themselves for state dollars by enrolling more high-demand majors. And they need students because the enrollments are decreasing. Former Representative David Kerr, Republican of Morning Sun, said last year while debating the proposal as chair of the House Education Appropriations Subcommittee, I think this is a great plan that they'll jump on board with. Well, Grassley recently said he still likes the idea. I think we want to change the conversation from just funding 
the regents' institutions to turn out more degrees, whatever those degrees may be, he said, citing workforce demands in specific areas like engineering, computer sciences, and teaching, for example. So what our approach is going to be is we're willing to offer some ways to make you more competitive to attract people into these fields, he said. And part of what our proposal did last year that we're looking at for this following year is not only getting people in these high-demand fields, but also additional resources to keep them in Iowa after that as well. Well, Nugent Regent requests. The Board of Regents for the upcoming budget year requested $34.7 million more in education appropriations, an ask driven by accelerating inflation that, if granted, would bring the state's total regent education appropriations to $610.5 million. The University of Iowa, UI, has committed to use its share to address Iowa's nursing shortage and improve outcomes for students who are the first in their family to attend college. ISU, too, has vowed to use additional state dollars to help first-generation students address state workforce needs and foster agriculture innovation, among other things. The University of Northern Iowa has said its increase would go toward keeping tuition competitive with regional peers and churning out more teachers. We want to make sure that any money we're spending, and this isn't exclusive to the regions, it's everywhere we spend money. That money is being spent in the best way possible, said Senator Jack Whitfer, the Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, stressing the importance of keeping tuition affordable and ensuring students reap reward of state appropriations. All those conversations are things that we'll have throughout the appropriations process. Not trade school. Whitfer said funding or try, tying funding to students pursuing high-demand majors is an interesting concept. I think taxpayer dollars should be used to invest in areas where we will have jobs that need workers. And there's a lot of great fields in the state of Iowa where we need upward of 100,000 employees, he said. In investing taxpayer dollars from the state to our regions, I don't think it's a bad idea to focus that on high-demand jobs. But Representative Jennifer Confers, Democrat of Windsor Heights, who leads Democrats in the Iowa House, said that type of thinking is too narrow for public universities that offer hundreds of different majors, minors, and certificates at the undergraduate, graduate, doctoral, and postdoctoral level. It's not trade school, Confers said. The region institutions are there to truly teach and educate future leaders in our state, and I think that what you'll find is the most jobs that are in demand right now might not be in demand in five years or vice versa. So let's not cut the regents off of the knees and say you can only get funding if you're teaching people how to do this job. Well, Iowa's public universities are creating well-rounded, critical-thinking leaders, uh, they say, who enrich the quality of life in the state and do more than generate revenue, according to Confirst. They're able to understand that a lot of fields have true value in our community that just that don't just translate into paychecks, she said. Although Confers didn't say how much exactly she's willing to appropriate the regents, she pointed to a widely circulated graphic showing what has happened as legislative appropriations have decreased over the years. Where state support accounted for 77% of the regents' general education funding in 1981, today that's down to 31%. Meanwhile, tuition revenue has soared from being 21% of region education funding to 64% today. At the end of the day, if the state is giving the region institutions less, families are paying more, she said. And if so, we want 
to make higher education affordable, if we are wanting to keep people staying in Iowa, we need to make sure that we we're doing what we need to support our region institutions. Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat of Coralville, pointed directly at Republicans to blame for increases in tuition, which is up 4.25% for all resident undergraduates across the region system this year. Let's be 100% clear, he said. Iowa Republicans are defunding our higher education system. That is a huge driver of why student debt is getting bigger. He accused Republicans have enacted tax cuts instead of investing in young workers who are in college and trying to get their careers off to the right start. That's a policy choice that Republicans are making, and it's having huge impacts on the ability of young people to start their careers. Uh, written by Caleb McAuliffe. He is of the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau, and he contributed to this report. We have a face of the day, Joey Splitchell who had a good winter break, and now he's ready to get back to work in, out, in and out of the classroom. Splitchell. Splitchell is a, you spell his last name, S-P-L-I-C-H-A-L. Splitchell, age 13, grew up and still lives in the Persia countryside. He's been a student at Tri-Center Community School District since preschool, and he's now a seventh grader at the middle school. Splitchell is a student athlete playing baseball and competing on the wrestling team. He's been playing baseball since he was a fourth grader, both for the Trojans and a select team. His current select club is Training Days. He said he loves the game and wants to keep playing through high school and perhaps college. That's why he is working on his skills now. He just recently got into wrestling and was spotted with some of his pals and fellow middle school wrestlers Tuesday evening as they helped the officials with timing during a quadrangular between the Tri-Center Abraham Lincoln A-H-S-T-W, and Southwest Iowa Varsity Squads. Splitchell said he had a Merry Christmas and fun winter break from school. He said his family went to his grandma's house just down the road for a Christmas Eve and then hosted family from Lincoln, Nebraska on Christmas Day. Splitchell said he's looking forward to 2023 and elevating his baseball skills and learning more about the sport of wrestling. That takes care of all our front page news and also news here on page A2, we move on past to uh, page A4 because A3 is about weather. So we'll talk about that towards the end of the broadcast today. And actually here on page A4 is about snow. So um, you know what? This is about weather, but uh, we'll read this now and get it out of the way. It's living advice, seven tips for avoiding back injuries while clearing snow. And with the time that we have left here, I'm not going to go in-depth and read this entire thing to you, but I'll give you just the Cliff Notes version. This written by Dr. Arjun Sebastian of the Mayo Clinic News Network. While seemingly an innocuous task, shoveling snow can be a rigorous aerobic activity and one that significantly stresses the back. You should be mindful to avoid serious injuries while shoveling. Here are a few tips and techniques to hopefully keep your driveway and sidewalk clear while avoiding serious injury. Number one, assess your personal fitness and ability. If you have any pre-existing conditions such as heart disease or lower back conditions, it is critical to consult with your health care provider before the snow starts falling. 
Often for those who have long-standing back issues, the best way to avoid injury may be to avoid shoveling altogether by purchasing a snowblower or hiring someone to help. Number two, warm up and stretch beforehand. Treat snow shoveling like any other workout. Warm up to get the heart rate up and blood flowing beforehand. Stretches focused on the lower back and hamstrings will also help prevent overstressing the back during shoveling. Number three, dress warmly and hydrate ahead of time. Keeping the body warm during aerobic activity improves blood flow and oxygenation to the muscles in the lower back, which reduces stress and overexertion. A good pair of boots or shoes with good traction will help you avoid slips and falls that could cause a back injury. Make sure to hydrate appropriately ahead of time to avoid exhaustion and lower back cramps. Number four, pick the right time and the right shovel. Depending on the timing of snowfall, many people tend to shovel early in the morning after waking up. This is not the most optimal for your body as you are less likely to be warmed up and you'll be more prone to injury. Try to avoid early morning or late night uh, shoveling as much as possible. If a large amount of snow is predicted to fall, consider taking multiple passes with frequent breaks so you are not shoveling large piles of snow. Lay down salt or sand ahead of time to improve traction and prevent ice buildup. Lastly, invest in a good snow shovel, ideally one that is lightweight, metal, and sturdy, and one that has good grips and a long shaft to help with leverage. A few more pointers here. Use your legs and take frequent breaks. That's number five. Number six, treat lower back strain appropriately, which uh, means to um, rest, give your body time to recover. You can use different uh, anti-inflammatory medications or topical agents like maybe like Icy Hot to make yourself feel better. Finally, number seven, be aware of red flag symptoms. Seek medical care where appropriate. If you have any severe, progressive, or persistent lower back pain, seek medical care urgently. This is especially true if your back symptoms are accompanied by pain radiating down your lower extremities, weakness in your legs or feet, numbness in your genital area, or symptoms of incontinence. Other non-spinal symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest pain, lightheadedness, palpitations also should warrant urgent medical evaluation. So, yeah, um... Be careful out there. It says stay hydrated. I find a nice shot of whiskey actually helps before going to shovel. It kind of takes the sting of the cold away. But that's just me. Moving on now to uh, the obituaries, and there are a lot. We've got the obituaries here. It's the halfway point of the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily non Pharrell for this Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. Andy here with you. Hope you're having a great afternoon taking it easy. Maybe staying inside because it's not the warmest out there. It's a good day to just kind of do nothing and just sit around and listen to Iris. Isn't that right? Starting off our obituaries with Michael Dallas Bailey, age 72 of Council Bluffs, Iowa. He passed away on December 6, 2022. He was born in Council Bluffs on August 4, 1950 to Dallas and Margaret Walker Bailey. Michael graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1968. He was a member of the Council Bluffs Masonic Lodge No. 71, he also operated and owned Pioneer Security and Detective Agency and worked in the security field for many years before retiring. Michael was preceded in death by his parents and brothers, Tony, Walt, and Lee Bailey. He is survived by his daughters, Michelle Marr, married to Kyle, Margaret Conway, married to Sean, and Melissa Peterson, married to Chris, grandchildren Alec Maher, 
Rachel, Alex married to Rachel. Caitlin Dietrich, um, it says she's married to Ruiz, Ruiz, R-U-I-Z. Also Dalton Maher, Brandon Conaway, Madeline Conaway, Chandler Peterson, Chase Peterson, and Brand- Braden Peterson. Great-grandchildren, Adeline, Tegan, and Quinley Maher. Sisters, Kaydell Valier and Vicki Smith. Vicky's married to Tony. Nieces, nephews, family, and friends. A celebration of Michael's life will be 11 a.m. Saturday, January the 7th, with visitation one hour prior at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home. Inurment is in the Cedar Lawn Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the family. From there we go to Ronald C. Butch Edelman Sr. Ronald C. Butch Edelman Sr., age 80, passed away at his home on January 1st, 2023. He was born February 3rd, 1942, to the late William and Eileen Tripp Edelman. Butch retired from Campbell Soup after 39 and a half years and was a member of Faith Lutheran Church. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his daughters, Kimberly and Tammy Edelman, grandchildren Jill and Garrett Ruby, brothers Robert, Ralph, Russell, Rex, and William Edelman, sisters Donna, Belt, Marilyn Beck, Ada Sangster, and Francis Wunderlich, sister-in-law Helen Hunt, brothers-in-law Lawrence Collinson, John Hansen, James Hansen, and Bill Hansen. Butch is survived by his wife of 62 years, Karen Edelman, children Shelley Newsom, married to Darwin, Ronald Edelman Jr., married to Kim, James Edelman, married to Terry, and Lori Ruby, married to Glenn. 15 grandchildren, 11 great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. Sisters Gloria Hansen and Peggy Eichhoff. Peggy's married to Tom. Extended family, Robert Hansen. Robert's married to Gail. Frank Hansen. Frank is married to Danette. Sue Whitfelt. Sue is married to Ray. And Kathy Collinson. Nieces, nephews, and cousins. All of the daycare kids throughout the years that he and Karen cared for. A prayer service will be held at 4.30 p.m., followed by visitation until 8 p.m. at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Friday, January 6, 2023. The family will direct memorials. From there we go to Franklin Lugene. Yes, Lugene Stricklett. Franklin Lugene, L-U-G-E-N-E, Stricklett. S-T-R-I-C-K-L-E-T-T, age 65, of Crescent, Iowa, passed away January 1st, 2023, at Bethany Lutheran Home. Franklin was born June 26, 1957, in Blair, Nebraska, to the late Lugene and Faye Stricklett. He is also preceded in death by his brother, Tom. Franklin formerly worked at Future Foam and retired from Metz Engineering in Crescent. Survivors include wife, Cindy, son, Bobby Dean Carter, Grandson Cole Allen, C. Dam, sister Christine Brown, nieces and nephews. Memorial service Friday at 1 p.m. at the funeral home with military rights by Canesville Rights Writers Honor Guard. From there we go to Douglas Leroy Golden. Last name is spelled G U L D E N. Douglas Leroy Golden. 
passed away peacefully surrounded by his loved ones in his home in Council Bluffs, Iowa on December 31st, 2022, after a long and courageous battle with multiple system atrophy, or MSA. Doug was born September 20th, 1953 in Bertha, Minnesota to Leroy Oscar and Idella Bernice, married to Mo Golden. I'm sorry, her maiden name was Mo. I, Idella Bernice Mo Golden. Their family lived on a family farm near Waterloo, Iowa. Doug graduated from Orange High School in 1971 and attended Kirkwood Community College. He began his career working full-time at Hy-Vee at the supermarket. This was a fortuitous decision because it led him to Council Bluffs, Iowa in 1979. There he met the love of his life, Tracy Ingram. They fell in love and were married on January 2, 1982. They raised two sons, Daniel Douglas and Andrew Michael. Doug and Tracy's home was the house, quote-unquote, where all the kids, friends, felt welcome, accepted, and loved. If you knew Doug, you knew love. You felt it through his actions, selfless spirit, positivity, and ability to always make you laugh. His legacy will be the lessons in patience, giving without expectation, and the love for your neighbor that he taught us all. Remaining to cherish his memory are his beloved wife, Tracy Golden, sons Daniel married to Sarah Golden, and Andrew married to Jackson Poynton Golden, and grandson Leroy James, known as LJ Golden, aged 23 months, parents-in-law Royce and Marjorie Ingram, sisters Maureen married to Don Witt, W-I-T-T-E, Eileen Olson and brother Mark married to Cheryl Golden. Brother-in-law Curtis married to Ann Ingram, sister-in-law Susan married to Mick Wagoner, and so many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents and his brother-in-law Craig Olson. Doug was lovingly taken care of over the many years of his disease by six devoted caregivers. Countless others also helped Doug and Tracy continue to live life to the fullest. We will never be able to thank our village enough. Next up, David Earl Rankin. David Earl Rankin, age 76, of Council Bluffs, passed away on December 26, 2022. He was born August 9, 1946, in Council Bluffs to Earl and Bernice Burke Rankin. He graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1964. David was preceded in death by his parents. He is survived by his children, Shelley Corisco, married to Gary, and Sean Rankin, married to Gail. Six grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, family and friends. Per David's request, no services will be held. From there we go to Charles L. Williams, age 88 of Council Bluffs, who passed away January 1st, 2023 at Bethany Lutheran Home. Born November 13, 1934 in Spalding, Nebraska, to the late Ray and Bernice, Bernice's maiden name Lockwood, their married name Williams, the family moved to Council Bluffs, Iowa in 1936. For many years, Charlie and his sister spent summers with cousins at their grandparents' ranch in the Nebraska Sandhills. Charlie was involved with Legion and church softball as a boy and took up golf as a teenager. He attended Oak Street School and graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1952. Charlie was employed by the Union Pacific Railroad before and after serving two years with the U.S. Army Military Police in Germany, 1953 to 1955. When the UP installed computers, Charlie was in one of the first groups of employees to work with them and eventually retired from the MIS-IT department after 35 years. In 
1959, he married Rosemary Garrett, and in 2022, they celebrated 63 years together. They have two children, Lisa and John. Charlie's, Charlie always loved to hunt and fish and was uh, and also an avid golfer. He was known to have a beer now and then with those companions. Charlie was a devoted Iowa sports fan. After retirement, Charlie and Rosemary moved to a lake home on Big Stone Lake in Wilmot, South Dakota, where they spent 12 years of living at the lake with a wonderful group of friends and neighbors. When health problems arose, the move was made back to Council Bluffs in 2010. Charlie is survived by his wife, Rosemary, and daughter, Lisa, of Council Bluffs, son, John, married to Nancy of Omaha, two grandchildren, Aaron Williams of Round Rock, Texas, and Jacob Williams of Omaha, sister, Avis Pulacek, nieces, Janelle, married to David Ford, Noel Ford, and Natalie Ford, all of Omaha. Visitation with a family will be Thursday, 10 to 11 a.m. with a funeral service beginning at 11 a.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Interment is in the Cedar Lawn Cemetery with military rites, tenored by the Canesville Honor Guard. A lunch will follow at the Walnut Hill Reception Center at 1350 East Pierce Street. Memorial contributions may be made to the Iowa Special Olympics at 551 Southeast Dovetail Road in Grimes, Iowa 50111. And from there, we go to Darlene Dolly Ice Nogle. Darlene Dolly Ice Nogle passed away December 31st, 2022 at 7:40 p.m. at Mercy Hospital in Council Bluffs, Iowa at the age of 60 or at the age of 85. Dolly was born in Galesburg, Illinois, on October 26, 1937. She graduated from Alexis High School. Dolly married Dale Pinky Eisnogel at the Alexis United Presbyterian Church on October 9, 1955. From their union, they had three daughters, Mary Magdalene, Daleen, Charlie, and Rebecca, known as Becky. After Dale's death in 2001, Dolly moved to Glenwood, and then to Trainer, Iowa, to be closer to her daughters and grandchildren. Dolly is preceded in death by her parents, Louise and John Bates, her husband Dale, and daughter Mary. She is survived by her daughters Daleen, married to Bill Lastovica, and Rebecca McKee. Grandchildren Ryan Knowles, married to Brooke Archibald. Katrina, known as Katie Trayball, married to Milton. Liz Wood, married to Nick. Aiden McKee married to Joanna Holland and Lauren McKee. Great-grandchildren Molly and Lucas Knowles, William Traval, Leland and Isaac Wood, sister Linda Sigler married to Randy, and brother Jay Bates married to Mary Ann. A celebration of life will be in the spring at the Gerlaw Christian Church. From there we go to Rajin Rojin. Lee Grigg, that first name spelled R-O-G-E-N-E, Rogene Lee Grigg, age 67, passed away January 2nd, 2023 at Bethany Lutheran Home. Rogene was born February 23rd, 1955 in Avoca, Iowa to the late Norval and Alice Kreich and graduated from ALHS in 1973. Her working career consisted of ASARCO, spelled A-S-A-R-C-O, ABF and Yellow and retiring from Deloitte and Touche. I'm saying that right. If I'm butchering those names, my apologies in advance. 
Rogene was a longtime member of New Horizon Presbyterian Church and is survived by husband James, whom she married December 1, 1998. Daughter Rochelle Kale and grandson Dakota Kale and granddaughter Montana Kale, all of Junction City, Kansas. Visitation is at 9.30 to 11 a.m., followed by a light luncheon at 11 a.m. all the New Horizon Presbyterian Church. Graveside services will follow the luncheon at the Graceland Cemetery in Avoca, Iowa. From there we go to Teresa K. Jacoby. Teresa K. Jacoby or Jacoby, last name spelled J-A-C-O-B-Y. Age 76, died Friday, December 30th. She was born October 12, 1946, to the late Harry and Grace Van Alone, witted in, Cedar, in Rapid City, South Dakota. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by her sisters, Rita Jurish and Geraldine Moser, and her ex-husband, Roy Jacoby. Teresa survived by her daughters, Tina Jacoby and Brandy, married to Sean Rossiter. Her grandchildren... Ariana Jacoby and Matthew Showmaker, and her brothers Danny Witted and Vince Witted. Visitation with the family Thursday 5 to 7 p.m. and funeral service Friday at 10 a.m. at the Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Burial to follow at a later date at New Underwood Cemetery, South Dakota. One more obituary here for Richard E. Rauhaus. Last name is spelled R-A-U-H-A-U-S. Richard E. Rawhouse, age 78, passed away January 2, 2023. He was born October 19, 1944, to the late Elias and Minnie, maiden name Hollins, Rawhouse in Omaha, Nebraska. Richard proudly served his country in the United States Navy and retired from Mid-American Energy. In addition to his parents, he was preceded in death by his daughter, Sean Marie McDonald, sisters Leona Smith-Harm, Irene Baker, Betty Phoenix, Viola Shamblin, and Darling Perry, along with infant brother Robert. Richard is survived by his wife of 57 years, Betty, maiden name Collins, Rawhouse, sister Frances Williams, fur baby, Sissy, and Bella, many nieces, nephews, cousins, a host of other family and friends. Visitation will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Sunday, January 8, 2023. Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. at the Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Monday, January 9th, 2023. The family will direct memorials in his honor. That's it for the obituaries. One story here. Apollo 7 astronaut dead at age 90. This by Seth Borenstein and Jake Bleiberg. Bleiberg. B-L-E-I-B-E-R-G. It's an AP story. Walter Cunningham, the last surviving astronaut from the first successful crewed space mission in NASA's Apollo program, died Tuesday in Houston. He was 90. NASA confirmed Cunningham's death in a statement but did not include its cause. His family said through a spokesman, Jeff Carr, that Cunningham died in a hospital from complications of a fall after a full and complete life. Cunningham was one of three astronauts aboard the 1968 Apollo 7 mission, an 11-day space flight that beamed a live television broadcast as the crew orbited Earth, paving the way for the moon landing less than a year later. Cunningham, then a civilian, crewed the mission with Navy Captain Walter M. Shira and Don F. Eisel, an Air Force major. Cunningham was the lunar module pilot on the space flight, which launched from Cape Kennedy Air Force Station in Florida on October 11th and splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean south of Bermuda. NASA and Cunningham, Eisel, and Shira flew a near-perfect mission. 
Their spacecraft performed so well, the agency sent the next crew, Apollo 8, to orbit the moon as a prelude to the Apollo 11 moon landing in July 1969. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said Tuesday that Cunningham was above all an explorer whose work also laid the foundation for the agency's new Artemis moon program. The Apollo 7 astronauts also won a special Emmy Award for their daily television reports from orbit, during which they clowned around, held up humorous signs, and educated Earthlings about spaceflight. It was NASA's first crewed space mission since the deaths of three Apollo 1 astronauts in a launch pad fire June, or rather January 27, 1967. Cunningham recalled the Apollo 7 during a 2017 event at the Kennedy Space Center, saying it enabled us to overcome all the obstacles we had after the Apollo 1 fire, and it became the longest, most successful test flight of any flying machine ever. Cunningham was born in Creston, Iowa, and attended high school in California before enlisting in the U.S. Navy in 1951 and serving as a Marine Corps pilot in Korea. Why don't we check in with the digest, and then we're going to jump back to some more weather news as we get ready to wrap up this thing. Israeli minister visits holy site, Dateline Jerusalem. An ultranationalist Israeli cabinet minister on Tuesday visited a flashpoint Jerusalem holy site for the first time since Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new far-right government took office last week. The visit drew fierce condemnation from across the Muslim world and a strong rebuke from the United States. Netanyahu attempted to downplay the incident, saying it was in line with long-standing understandings at the disputed holy site. But the visit by National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir unnerved both enemies and allies that have expressed strong misgivings about the far-right makeup of the new government. Ben-Gvir, a West Bank settler, leader who draws inspiration from a racist rabbi, entered the site known to Jews as the Temple Mount and to Muslims as the Noble Sanctuary, flanked by a large contingent of police officers. He plans to visit, his plans to visit drew threats from Gaza's Hamas militant group. All right, one more here. Founder of FTX pleads not guilty, of course. Dateline New York. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried pleaded not guilty in Manhattan Federal Court Tuesday to charges that he cheated investors and looted customers' deposits on his cryptocurrency trading platform as a judge set a tentative trial date for October. Bankman-Fried, age 30, is accused of illegally diverting massive sums of customer money from FTX to make lavish real estate purchases, donate money to politicians, and make risky trades at Alameda Research, his cryptocurrency hedge fund trading firm. Bankman-Fried's attorney, Mark Cohen, announced his client's plea, saying he pleads not guilty to all counts. Judge Louis A. Kaplan set a tentative trial date of October 2nd, saying he might move it forward or backwards a day or two. Motions by the defense and responses to them by prosecutors will be due in April, with an argument over the motions taking place on May 18th. All right, and some weather news now. Full forecast, cold returns. Following a warmer New Year's weekend, temperatures return to more seasonable norms this week. Today will be mostly cloudy with a high near 29 degrees and wind gusts as high as 23 miles per hour, according to the National Weather Service. Tonight will be mostly cloudy with a low around 21. Skies will alternate between cloudy and sunny this week, with highs fluctuating throughout the 30s. No precipitation is expected after Thursday for the remainder of the forecast period, according to the National or the according to the Weather Service's forecast discussion. 
The forecast according to the Weather Service. Today, mostly cloudy with a high near 29. Northwest wind around 14 miles per hour, gusting to as high as 23 miles per hour. For tonight, mostly cloudy with low around 21. West-northwest wind 11 to 13 miles per hour with gusts as high as 21 miles per hour. Thursday, partly sunny with a high near 30. Northwest winds gusting as high as 21 miles per hour. Thursday night, partly cloudy, a low around 19. Friday, partly sunny, a high near 39. Not bad. Friday night, mostly cloudy, with low around 23. Saturday, Saturday during the day, partly sunny with a high near 31. Saturday night, mostly cloudy, with low around 19. Sunday, mostly sunny, a high near 34. And Sunday night, partly, well, partly something. It gets cut off, so I don't know, partly something. There is no follow-on to this uh, print. This goes to show, make sure you format your papers before you print them. Our last story, DNR to eliminate invasive rough fish at Nobles Lake. Dateline, Missouri Valley, Iowa. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources will treat Nobles Lake with a low concentration of rotenone, rotenone, that spelled R-O-T-E-N-O-N-E, to eliminate rough fish. That's according to a press release shared Tuesday. Nobles Lake, a 95-acre cutoff oxbow lake located in Harrison and Pottawatomie counties on the Mississippi River floodplain, was inundated and infested with numerous invasive and river fish species during the floods of 2011 and 2019. The drier-than-normal conditions and historic low flows in the Missouri River has nearly drained Nobles Lake, providing ideal conditions to remove rough fish. Invasive species like silver carp, bighead carp, Short-nosed gar and common carp have a negative impact on water quality and wildlife habitat by suppressing aquatic plants. The most effective method to eliminate the remaining fish population is to apply rotinun under the ice this winter, said Brian Hayes, fisheries manager biologist with the Iowa DNR. Rotinun is used worldwide and has been since has been since the 1930s. It is a common tool that fisheries managers use for fish removal. Rotenone is a naturally occurring compound that occurs from the roots of a top tropical plant in the bean family. The Iowa DNR commonly uses a commercially available formulation 5% Prenfish, which has been approved for fisheries management by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Nobles Lake is part of a larger 236-acre Iowa DNR wildlife management area primarily used by waterfowl hunters and bird watchers. Well, I think that's about everything we have for this episode of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Perel, or at least that we have time for. There's much more, but uh, we only have an hour, so that means we've got to wrap it up here. Don't forget all the material you've heard on Iris here in this reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Perel is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. Our audience. I'm your reader today filling in. My name is Andrew Haupt. Thank you so much for sharing your time with Iris. And we uh, appreciate your listenership as always. Thank you so much for your time. Have a nice day, a wonderful day. Stay warm and straight ahead. (music) 